Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm David Kern and I quickly wanted to say a word of thanks to some of our friends who are making this show possible. Our friends over at the CLT, the Classic Learning Test, are doing an amazing work. They're a classically based alternative to the SAT and the ACT and it's the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 90 colleges now accept the CLT and many of them even endorse the CLT as their preferred admissions test. That's even more than the SAT and the ACT. Students who take the test can benefit from same-day test results and can share their scores with colleges for no additional charge. To learn more or to find out how to take a test, you can head over to cltexam.com. Again, to register for the CLT, you head over to cltexam.com. So again, thanks so much to our friends over at the Classic Learning Test for sponsoring the Cersei Institute Podcast Network this month. It's because of them and partners like them that this network is possible. And with that, enjoy your show. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education. This week, I'm really excited to bring you an interview that I conducted with an old friend of ours, Sarah McKenzie. You're probably familiar with Sarah because of her podcast, the immensely popular Read Aloud Revival podcast, where Sarah helps families all over the world make meaningful and lasting connections with their kids through books. Uh, she's also the author of Teaching from Rest, A Homeschooler's Guide to Unshakable Peace, so you may know her from that as well. But in this episode, Sarah joined me to talk about her new book, The Read Aloud Family, Making Meaningful and Lasting Connections with your kids. This book is available right now to pre-order on readaloudrevival.com and it will be available in stores on March 27th. So that's coming up pretty quickly. Sarah and I talked quite a bit about um, the story behind this book and some of the things that she writes about in it, but we also talked a lot about her life as a parent, her life as a writer, and a bunch of random things that just kind of popped up in the course of conversation. Sarah is a great person to talk to, a great conversationalist. 
um, and someone that I've known for a long time. So it's always great to catch up, and I hope that you will uh, enjoy this conversation. I hope you'll go check out her book, and I hope you'll check out many of the other things that she has going on, especially her podcast, if you are one of the few people who has yet to check out the Read Aloud Revival podcast. And you can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll kick it over to my interview with Sarah. Enjoy, and talk to you next time. Well, I am here with Sarah McKenzie, kind of an old friend, Sarah McKenzie. I mean, maybe not like a really old friend, but you know, we've known you for a while. Uh, yeah. How's it going? It's pretty good. It's good to talk to you. I always like chatting with you, David. Yeah, it's always an honor and a great fun to have you on, on a Cersei podcast. So you have this book coming out. Congratulations, by the way. That's super exciting. Thank you. This has been, I feel like you've been talking about this or working on it and, you know, at least mentioning it in passing for years now. Has it been that long or am I just making that up? Well, it's been that long that I've been really thinking about and figuring out the, um, the wide impact, I guess, on our children's lives of reading aloud. So I feel like it's been sort of the central theme of my thinking life for years. Yeah. Um, and then the book itself, yeah, the last couple of years, it's been a big project. So I'm excited for it to be finally out in the world because it was a lot harder to write than I expected. Um, having spent so much time talking on the podcast and um, with at conventions and things about reading aloud, it was a lot harder to write than I expected. But it was also one of those, um, those experiences where you sort of push through and learn new things and figure it out. And then you're just really, really happy with how it all came out. So I'm excited for it to be in people's hands finally soon. Was it, is that your way of saying you're ready to just be done with it? Because <laughs> that's one way of putting it, but not, <laughs> not. You know, the funny thing is, um, I'm really excited to talk about the book because I think on the podcast oh, yeah, too, yeah. we have been. You know, we. Are, I've been trying to be careful about like not. I don't know. Not spilling it, all your secrets from the book <laughs> at a time, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I'm excited to start talking about some of the things that I learned while while writing the book. So that's been yeah, that's good. Was it, I, when I talk to people who've written books before, um, it seems like even people who've written a lot of books, every book is a new experience. Like it's a new challenge and um, you come up with new things you want to say and it takes you in new directions, even completely different directions than you thought you were going to go. Like when you wrote the book pitch or you wrote the first chapter or whatever. Did you find that that's the case as you were writing this? Like, did it take you in directions that you that were unexpected for you? Or did you kind of have it laid out and it was kind of the roadmap worked out for you? It was so different than I expected because... So when I wrote Teaching from Rest, that book really came out of just a bubbling need and desire for myself to figure out how to teach from rest and mm-hmm. think yeah. about it a lot. So just sort of, yeah. it was a little more organic. The yeah. writing of this book felt like, you know, I... Um, I had done the proposal for the publisher and it's totally different than the proposal (laughs) now at the end. Now it's totally different than the proposal was. I think at the beginning, I thought I was writing a book about reading aloud and about halfway to the project, I realized that was not what I was writing a book about. I was writing a book about connecting with our kids about, um, you know, I used to always say build a family culture around books. And I realized I'm a tired, overwhelmed homeschooling mom. I don't wake up in the morning and think, how can I build a family culture today, right? Yeah, you probably don't. Yeah, culture is kind of a big word for like the day-to-day. It is, yeah. And you kind of think if you're going to be doing something so monumental, like building a family culture, there better be some, you should be able to see some of the uh, the payoff or 
read, yeah. what I found is that what the real heart of reading aloud is or why it's become so important in my life and in the lives of other families I've talked to is because it connects us with our kids in a world that is very loud and fast and busy. And we all really crave this connection and yeah. reading aloud ends up being a really beautiful way to connect with our kids. And at the same time, it's doing all these wonderful things for their brain and for their sense of empathy and all kinds of things. So mm. it was a different book, it ended up being a different book than I thought I was writing. I like it better than the one I thought I was <laughs> writing, but it was also a lot harder to write. <laughs> yeah. So was the read aloud family, uh, making meaningful and lasting connections with your kids? Like as a title, was that the original title or did that evolve as, as the ideas evolved? That actually evolved originally. I was uh, planning on calling it read aloud revival, just like the podcast mm, yeah, yeah. and, um, build your family culture around books, just like the podcast. And then yeah. as I progressed with the book project, it ended up now we've sort of changed the tagline on the podcast to match the book because I mm. realized that's at its essence, what we're doing. That's sort of the simple, the, at its very core, what are we doing? We are making these connections that are rich and meaningful and that hopefully will last a lifetime through mm. books. So yeah. yeah, it sort of developed as the book was being written. Yeah. So as I was kind of reading the book and thinking about what we were going to talk about, I started thinking about how our audience is probably not one, as you know, that like, we don't really need to convince them to read with their kids. Um, right. <laughs> you know, like most of our listeners, I mean, unless they're new listeners that are kind of coming to us, you know, through you or they want to learn about this book or something are pretty convinced that there's value in books and in our kids reading books and in sharing books with our families. But then I got to thinking about how there is something um, more specific about that subtitle, about making meaningful and lasting connections with our kids. And it seems like it's, it's a, uh, I don't know if less, maybe I may always put it this way. It's a less abstract way of talking about why those experiences are so meaningful. Like I think a lot of us, as we, you know, maybe when you first have young kids, you discover that, you know, at first maybe you think, oh, I'm going to have my kids read books because it's going to be good for their souls and their minds and all that kind of stuff. And you don't really know why exactly. But then as you're reading them with your kids, it starts something sort of transcendent seems to be happening. And you don't, it's sometimes hard to put a finger on exactly what that is. Um, but I think the way you put it in that subtitle maybe does put a, put a finger on that and puts it in more of a tangible way that, that what's happening is that the connect, we're having connections with our kids and they're having connections with the books and it's something really meaningful is happening. So when you were raising your kids, you have six kids and they're, what's the young, how old's the youngest now? The youngest are four and a half year old twins right? and okay. the oldest is 16. So 16. yeah. Okay. So when, high school. so when you're, that's, that sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's as crazy as it sounds really, yeah. but <laughs> so when you were, you talk about this a bit in the book, but when you were a young mom, did you feel that you were setting out to read with your children because it was going to draw you closer to each other, you and your daughter? Or was it more of the, well, I know they're good for, for my kids. And so I'm going to read to them. Did, did you yeah, it's definitely? Out? It started as because I read Jim Trelease's read aloud handbook and mm -hmm. I realized um, that there were these academic benefits and social emotional type benefits to reading books with my kids. So I started reading to my oldest daughter when she was very young. And mm -hmm. then I just, you know, read aloud probably about as much as any, maybe a little more, but than average, but you know, bedtime stories and 
when you've got kids who can't read on their own, reading aloud is natural. Mm -hmm. And then about the time my oldest kids were starting to read more on their own, I heard Andrew Pudua, our mutual friend from the Institute for Excellence in Writing, talk about the benefits of reading aloud with kids who can read to themselves. And he mostly was focusing on that talk about how to help your kids be good communicators. So he was talking about vocabulary and grammatically correct and sophisticated language patterns. And that caught my attention. So I started reading aloud more with my older kids. Then I, what I realized was all those things he said would happen did in fact happen, you know, the vocabulary and the better reading comprehension and the improvement in their writing and their speaking and Uh, But then there's this whole other thing. And you used the word just a minute ago, you used the word transcendent. And I think that really captures what it felt like. Mm -hmm. We were doing something that connected us on a deeper level that I did not anticipate seeing that, that kind of shift in our relationship. And that's the part where I feel like, like reading aloud is this power punch, you know, where you get these academic benefits and you get your kids get to slip into the shoes of someone else. They become more empathetic or compassionate or, or at least get more practice seeing the world from a different point of view. So you have all those benefits, but the one that actually means more to me than all that is forming those relationships so that hopefully someday my kids will want to come home for Christmas. (laughs) You know, someday when they're looking back on their childhood, they won't just remember the harried, overwhelmed homeschooling mom, but they'll, they'll remember some of these shared moments that we were able to, um, to sneak in even on our busiest days. Hmm. Do you, do you still have to be, I mean, as the, um, as like, I don't, I don't know what the word is. I would say the godfather, but that doesn't, that doesn't really work. And godmother sounds like the fairy godmother. So as, yeah, the, as, as like the, the, uh, as if, uh, as like a leader of this revival, I'll put it that way. I feel like that's the most, like the best way I can put it without like offending you or being disrespectful. Uh, do you still find that you still have to carve out that time or does it come more naturally to you after all these years of talking about it? Is that, or am I, or is it like an unfair question and you're not going to give away all kinds of stuff you don't want to give away? <laughs> I will not admit to my, um, no, it's, it actually still takes as much work. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I feel, um, I feel just like any other parent who works and raises kids and is trying to help them get a good education and put dinner on the table and make sure everybody has clean underwear. The the reading aloud oftentimes feels like the last thing I have time for in my day. So it doesn't necessarily, I mean, I have gotten better about making a place for it in the schedule so that it has a place. So we have to actually take, you know, we have to make a cognitive decision not to do it because it's got a priority place in the schedule. But I don't know that it's just more natural. I actually think, you know, people are always surprised when they ask me, how much do you read aloud every day? And when I tell them, they're always surprised. It's not nearly as much as they thought. Um, but I think that's one of the beauties of reading aloud is that you can do it in these small chunks of time, even when you're really, really busy and it can still have that great impact. So yeah, but I, I, you know, if we go for too many days without reading aloud, my kids will start to make some snide comments about how <laughs> we didn't have time to read aloud because I was too busy recording Read Loud Revival podcast. So, you know, that keeps me pretty honest in my own home. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, um, speaking of being the uh, the godmother of the read aloud movement, um, do you... I have to start carrying around a wand. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should. Do you like have a costume that you like homeschool conventions and stuff like that? Um, yeah. Although that might get a little weird. Um, so... Do you, uh, have you, have you, um, discovered that you're like a newfound celebrity or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 
don't know if celebrity is the right word. I mean, I'm an extrovert, so it's really fun when I go to homeschool conferences and that kind of thing to meet the people that I have been um, interacting with online or in the podcast comments or in email or on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I love that. And, and it reminds me, um, cause sometimes when you're at home and you're recording podcasts, you know, this David, you kind of feel like you're talking out into the void or writing yeah. out into this yeah. void. And, For sure, yeah. and so there's that human connection that I just crave. And so I love it when people come to me at conferences and give me a hug or, tell me something that really moved them because it feels more, the whole, the whole operation feels more human to me that way. Other than just trying to like carve out the time for your own family and yourself, has there been anything surprising about all this blowing up that just like your story is, seems like it's probably changed a lot. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing has been really surprising to me, but maybe it shouldn't have because I don't think it actually, the way the Read Aloud Revival podcast has blown up or none of that has to do with me. It all has to do with this idea that when parents, I really feel like when busy, overwhelmed parents who their deepest heart's longing is to connect with their kids, when they figure out that it's something so simple as reading aloud Hmm. with their kids and talking with them, they can't help but get just absolutely excited about it because it feels transformative. Um, if you've been through a season in your family life where you feel really disconnected from your kids, especially as they get older and then have this magnificent moment where you can all laugh together over a story or share a really poignant part of a book. Um, it's, it's exactly like you said before, it's transcendent. So I think the reason it's blown up the way it has is simply that's the power of reading aloud. And sometimes, you know, the most effective, most powerful parts of our lives are the simplest. I think that this is a case of that where we just, you know, I just noticed it in my own life and certainly didn't expect that the, when we started the podcast, it would be what it is now. But when I think oh, I'm so surprised and I am <laughs> that it's become what it is at the same time, I wonder why should I be so surprised? I saw this happening in my own family and I was so excited. I was so, you know, revved up about what, what this would mean for the rest of our family life that I am not surprised to think that so many other families feel the same way. Is there like a moment or a show or a conversation that you had where you just kind of like realized that it had made it like, I don't made it. I mean, shaking always get bigger, but like where it had gotten really big and you just were like, whoa, this is a thing. Yeah. Um, every time we get a really famous, <laughs> um, children's author, uh, oh, to yeah. say, yes, I'd love to come talk to your community. Uh, I sort of have that moment. So we, we have Kate DiCamillo coming next, later this year. Um, I interviewed Catherine Patterson, who of course read, uh, wrote the bridge to Terabithia and Jacob have I loved and all. And she's written some collections of essays on reading and writing for children that are all out of print, but they are exquisite. And when I got to interview her, I sort of was just sitting in front of my podcasting mic asking <laughs> Catherine Patterson these questions thinking, wow, wow, how did this happen? This is amazing. So um, those are moments when I just sort of feel like I got really lucky or when I'm, you know, (laughs) quote unquote working and my husband comes in and I'm like in bed reading my middle grade series (laughs) and I get to call it work. Those are the moments where I think like, I think, I don't know how I got this gig, but I kind of like it. (laughs) So, um, so when you talk to, when you're talking to someone like Katie Camillo or some author like that, do you, do you have a hard time, like not sort of just like being a fangirl or, or does it? Oh, yes. Sort of... No, it's you, so hard. And do you have to like make yourself be professional. 
Yes. And I don't know if I'm always that good about it. Um, <laughs> so sometimes I'll listen to the recordings later and think, oh yeah, I could have toned that down a little bit. So I try and do a few things now. If I know I'm going to be talking to someone I'm really excited about, like drink less coffee before the conversation. And I am sort of naturally- Take a nap a- right before. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I am just sort of naturally like energized by conversations with people and maybe a little high energy myself. So that can come across as a little over the top. And then when you're fangirling and trying to hide that, it sometimes it doesn't, doesn't work so well. <laughs> have, you ever had a, have you ever had anyone where it feels like they're kind of like, who, what's going on here? Why, who, why does she, why is she being so energetic? <laughs> I don't think so. I so. I mean, maybe they are, and I just I can't see them because we're podcasting, whatever. And so they're thinking, "Oh my gosh, this lady's off the hook," but they're really polite. So (laughs) I didn't know that people. I bet people like it when someone's like really energetic about their books or whatever. Like, I if I was writing, if I'd written a children's book and was talking to you, and someone had like real interest in it, that probably goes a long way. Well, you know, I think a lot of times, yeah, I do, and I think I feel this. So. I think a lot of times authors get interviewed about books and the people who are interviewing them haven't ever read them. I think that's pretty normal. And so that feels a little, and so they'll always, if I can mention, you know, once they realize that I've read your books or I wouldn't be talking to you right now, (laughs) you know, that's why I asked you here. Um, I think they relax a little bit and then can enjoy themselves because, and a lot of times they'll say, oh, you've read them. And I always surprises me how surprised they are by that. Cause I think, um, of course I did before we're going to have a conversation, but, um, yeah, you know, who knows? Maybe I intimidate some of them <laughs> by my energy. I don't know. Or not intimidate's not the right word, but like, you know, make them roll their eyes. They don't do it in front of me, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, you're not sitting across a desk from them. So like you're you're saying that you when you go on podcasts occasionally, someone will just open a book to a random spot and ask you a question, like probably just come up with a random question at that exact random spot. Is that what you're saying? I mean, um, I remember Catherine Patterson, when I talked to her specifically, she was surprised that I could talk so much about the books that she had written and about her essays. And I had pulled quotes and things. And oh, I really, you know, when she would comment about something she does in her process of writing and I asked if, okay, so is that like in the Bridges Terabithia when this happened? Is that an example? And she'd go, oh my goodness. Okay. You've actually read these. And I think it just (laughs) makes them relax a little bit. Like they don't have to. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a, it feels like a conversation, not like a press tour, right? Right, or something like and that. And there's another. I mean, Tommy DePaola has come to the Read Aloud Revival. Uh, well, I guess he's just been once so far, but pretty soon he's coming back. And he is my favorite picture book author and illustrator of all time. So that uh, definitely feels um, kind of surreal that I get to chat with him. And then he asked to read an early copy of my new book, and that oh, all that, cool. that was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. So. <clears throat> If you could talk to anybody, you just said that he's your favorite children's book illustrator, right? And you've mentioned mm-hmm. a couple authors who you were excited to talk to. If you could talk to any children's book um, author or illustrator that is not living right now, who would that be? Oh, that like is Like if such you could go back question. in history and talk okay. to Beatrix Potter or somebody, I mean, who, what, would you, what do you think it would be? I think it might be Edith Nesbitt. Mm. Um, I really think her books, there's something about her books where they stand the test of time. So many, um, I think for really modern contemporary kids, a lot of the kids we're reaching at Read Aloud Revival are um, maybe not really voracious readers, like probably the kind of the families that are listening right now. Um, And so they are... um, 
they're not as familiar with some of those older classics of children's literature and yeah. something about Edith Nesbitt's books, um, they still appeal to kids today in with this, I don't know if it's the same kind of um, pull as they did back when they were published, but yeah. um, maybe either her or Edward Eager, who wrote the Half Magic books, but he was very heavily influenced by <laughs> Inesbit. So maybe I'd just go back to Inesbit herself. <laughs> so what, what what about her books? Do you think what what about them? Do you do you think it is that is so universal or like kind of even kids now are finding them as appealing as uh, you know decades ago? I'm not sure. Maybe because they appeal to some of the the hallmarks of childhood, some of those things that all children are struggling with, like, why am I here? Or what can I offer the world? Or what's the meaning of home? Or some of those things that it doesn't matter if it was 100 years ago, or if it's today, we're still struggling with the same questions when we're 12. You know, um, a lot of times, I think we think that real adult deep reading grapples with tough questions. And it does, but children's reading does too. It just yeah. does it at a whole different in a whole different capacity. And so our kids are asking that question of themselves, you know, why am I here? And what, what, Am I, am I going to be able to contribute anything to this world? Um, and they're just funny and, and easy to read. And I think, uh, especially for kids who are maybe nervous about the classics or a, a little unfamiliar with older books, they are a really good stepping stone because they are just as easy to read as your contemporary stuff that's coming off the shelves, but they've got like a, a lasting quality or deeper themes to them. Do you, do you buy the argument that the children's books that are coming out now are of are generally speaking of a lesser quality than the ones that came out around that time? I don't, I don't, I, I really feel like when I dig into that conversation with, um, people who ardently feel that way, I notice that they're not necessarily reading the best books that are coming out today though. And, and some of those are award winners. I was going to say the award winners. Some of those are, some of them aren't, but some of the best books I've ever read for children are coming out now. Um, a good example is the Wilder King trilogy of uh, the, that starts with The Bark of the Bog Owl by Jonathan I'm Rogers. Reading that right now. Oh, you are. Yeah, oh my like, goodness. I We're midway right now. <laughs> okay. I love that series. It is so it's so well written. It is a perfect example of that I like to throw out when someone says, you know, well, all the best books were published, you know, in the golden age of children's literature. Um, that's just not true <laughs> because there's, um, you know, books by S.D. Smith or Andrew Peterson, um, yeah. and there's books coming out of very secular contemporary publishers that are exquisite. Um, mm -hmm. Kate DiCamillo is a really good example of someone who writes books that um, they really meet you on a deep level. And yes, they're written in modern contemporary language, but they still touch on some of those eternal themes. And they do that in a way that can meet the needs of a lot of today's children. So I, I, I read a lot of um, middle grade and YA that comes out now because I'm trying to help read a lot of revival listeners and parents yeah. know what they can, um, you know, in good conscience hand to their kids and is worth their time and attention. So I read a lot of new stuff and I'm just continually surprised at how much uh, really worthwhile literature is coming out of the children's book market today. So yes, it seems like one of your, I mean, one of your jobs is to just interview and promote books and all that, but that leads to kind of this role as a curator for a lot of families. So when you're, when you're looking for books and you're reading new stuff and you're figuring out what to recommend, how do you determine like whether one of these children's books or young adult books are, is good? I mean, like, how, would you have some principles or some categories of questions that you're asking yourself as you're thinking about it? Or is it, 
you know, for a lot of people, this kind of thing is like a gut thing. Like you just kind of have an instinct about it. Do you feel like you lean more on kind of an intellectual approach to determining that or more of that visceral gut level approach when you're curating for families? Oh, it is really tricky for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I'm recommending for kids and kids can vary widely in their emotional maturity. So, yeah. you know, what I might hand to my 14 or 16 year old, um, someone else might hand to their 14 or 16 year old and be horrified <laughs> that yeah. I thought it was yeah. appropriate or a good conversation starter. Yeah. Um, when it, I generally it sounds like you're kind two. of in a no win situation here, Sarah. I know <laughs> exactly. It's like, like, how, how are you not? This? How are you not just making people angry all the time? <laughs> yeah, I think I actually am. And we hear it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> people who are a little astonished that I would recommend this book or that book. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that I look for is a book that could appeal to a wide range of ages, especially because we're talking about reading aloud. So most families have a wide, at least, you know, their kids are not all within the same year or two span. So yeah. finding yeah. books that can appeal, like C.S. Lewis, like Lewis, that can mm -hmm. appeal to you know, younger kids and older teens and the adults who are reading them. So that's one of those things I look for. And I'm also, especially in contemporary literature, I'm always looking for a sense of hope um, at the end of the story. So even if you have a really sad or heartbreaking tale like Bridge to Terabithia, um, I want to see the, the, the author leave the reader with hope because I feel that as children's authors and, and when we're handing books to our kids, we are not being honest with them if we don't leave them hope because we are people of hope and they're even in tremendous sorrow and hardship and sin and suffering. We know that there is so much eternal hope. And so if a book is just sort of a leaves a kid with a, a feeling that the, the world is awful. I mean, no kid, need, especially no teenager needs more of that in their life. So I'm always looking for that, that trace of hope at the end, that um, eternal truth that there is always hope, even in the storm. So those are two qualities I look for, but it can be a little tricky. The hardest part I find is not necessarily choosing which books to recommend, but ages, because we get a lot of yeah. question about ages and that emotional maturity can vary so much. So I sort of started saying things like, um, you know, I would recommend this book in my own home. I would recommend this book for anyone who is 12 and up, who's ready to talk about uh, these issues. And that can help because, um, you know, someone can go, well, I have a 10 year old and we're talking about those issues, or I have yeah, a 14 year old yeah. who's not ready to tackle that. Um, but you know, I really think the best gift we can give parents is not necessarily a book list or a approved voice that can say, I read those books and I can tell you they're good for your kids, but rather just help them know what to look for and trust their gut and talk with their kids so that if their kids do read books or if they share books together that they're surprised or displeased by the content or their kids were not ready emotionally for whatever that book tackled, they have the tools to be able to talk with them about that. And that can sort of flip a bad reading experience into a pretty good um, moment between parent and child. Hmm. Uh, so uh, you don't need to name any names or throw any books under the bus, but have, has there been any books that you recommended and then sort of regretted that you did? Oh yes, actually it happens all the time. Um, <laughs> not, I don't recommend them, but what happens because we live in this social media world and people are asking me all the time, what are you reading now? I'll do things. I used to always post pictures of what I was reading on the plane. Like if I was traveling to a conference Oh yeah. and I have learned not to do that because I will be mid flight and go, I can't believe I took a picture and put this up on social media. Um, yeah, and so, so then, then I'll like, kind of, so people will just see that you're reading this, then they'll go pick it up. 
It's like, it's yeah, like a, and I've heard that people will go, oh, I saw this book recommended on the Read a Lot of Bible, and they'll take a picture of it, and I'll think, I didn't recommend that book. I just said it was in my reading stack for this month, you know, what I was yeah. going to read next week, but I hadn't started it. So yeah, it yeah. sort of ends up being anything that shows up on any social media feed or whatever <laughs> comes across as a recommendation. So I'm being a little more careful about like what I share and trying to read everything cover to cover before it gets shared because, um, goodness, with especially with contemporary books, there are some things can really shock you and come up that you're like, I did not see that coming. <laughs> and, or especially if they're superfluous, you know, to this story. And I just wonder, I don't know why the author put that in there, but this can just, that can discredit a book qu- pretty quickly. So, yeah. So we're talking a little bit about like discernment here and I'm curious, you have, so you, your daughter's 16 and then what the next 14, did you say? Uh-huh. Yep. So they're at that age, I guess, where they, you're probably allowing them to choose, you know, more and more of the books that they're reading. So it as far as building this culture of books at home and, and kind of building these connections, how does teaching your, your own kids discernment in the books that they choose and then learning how, you know, how to ask the right questions about them and determine whether or not the books that they chose were good, how does that play into it? And how has that evolved in your thinking as, you know, as your children have gone from, you know, you kind of dictate what they read for them to now they're old enough to choose their own things. And that's kind of happened as this show has kind of gotten bigger and bigger. And as the book has come out, I imagine you've had to think about that in the midst of all this kind of blowing up. Yeah. I think one of the best parts about having teenagers who can select their own reading, if, if you've been reading with them and talking with them really casually about books, so it's just a normal thing for you to have a conversation about what they're reading or to ask questions about what they're reading. Mm -hmm. Um, What I've noticed is my teenagers will come to me and say, okay, well, the author did this. And I think it, I think that was a political commentary. I don't even think that had anything to do with the story or they'll come to me and say, well, um, this author or, you know, just this character did this horrific thing. And I think the reason they did it, we'll have this conversation. I think what happened is because we've talked for so long casually about why character, what they want, why the character wants what they want or why they can't have it. Um, it's just been a sort of, we just normally ask questions about the books we're reading because we've done it casually over the years. They have become pretty attuned to asking themselves those questions as they read. And um, because we're around each other a lot, they often uh, will bring those up to me and then we can have some conversations about those. I do think there's, um, we have like the sense of discomfort as parents when we see our kids picking books that we would not, like we would like to think that maybe they had higher, more cultivated literary taste. (laughs) Um, And I've had to sort of let myself remember that I, I can't, I'm not going to help shape their taste by like ramming it down their throats. Like, don't read that. That's like disparaging the things that I think yeah. are, you know, fluffy or light or beneath their. Yeah. Or making it like about their moral capabilities and like character. Like, oh, yeah, you exactly. Like, you chose that book because you're, you know, this says something, ter- something about you as a person. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And also if my teenagers especially think that uh, I'm, suggesting certain books to them because I'm trying to, because they're like a project of mine because I'm trying to make better humans that resist that. So I think it takes some time to build up that trust. And that also includes that sometimes they're reading books that I kind of roll my eyes at and then I just, you know, yeah. So, so, okay. So if your daughter picks a book, um, that, that you're really just really unsure of and, but you say, you know, I'm going to let her read it because she's 16 now and, you know, we'll have some conversations about it. I mean, if you're really concerned about it, how do you, 
you know, I don't, I don't guess, I, you know, this is going to vary from family to family. Like some families are going to be, some kids are going to be way more out front about how they feel about a book or what their experiences were. And some kids don't want to talk to the parents at all, especially at that age. But how do you, how do you approach that where you have these concerns and you're trying, you kind of want to know what this experience was like? How did they respond to this stuff that you know you would prefer them to be responding positively to? I mean, it seems like there's got to be something of a gray area and a difficult challenge there that yeah, I am I not looking is. forward to in 10 years or so. <laughs> Well, I think there is. Okay. So one of the things is uh, if I'm worried about content and if, especially if we're talking about books that are coming out today, that's a valid concern that there's like some content in there that is not appropriate, even for a 14 year old. I mean, there's some YA books that I wouldn't really be comfortable reading myself. Um, So I do look them up. If I'm not familiar with them, I usually use something plugged in just to do a brief, like looking to see what kind of content, um, potentially questionable content they might encounter. So I'm ready to talk to them about it or so that I can tell them, hey, I don't actually think this is a good book for you to read right now. And this is why. Let's find something else. For the most part, my kids respond pretty well to that. On the other hand, there have been times where my kids have read a whole book and then they'll come to me and say like, start talking about it. And I'll think, okay. And the best with teenagers, I think the best way I've learned to handle that, and we'll see if this, you know, continues, um, my oldest is 16. So who knows as she gets older, but you know, is to take them out for coffee or Mm. to pull them aside and just try to reach them. Um, I don't want to say friend to friend because that's not the right, um, metaphor for it, but person to person. Yeah. Instead of teacher to student, because I feel like if we can sometimes just open up a conversation where they don't feel like the stakes are so high, um, or they just feel like we're just interested in hearing what their thoughts were. A lot of times I can take, um, you know, a book that has a questionable theme and sort of unveil that for my kids by asking a few questions about what the main character wants and why can't they have it. And if you have a book where, um, maybe the author's worldview or the point of the book was questionable, that can be pretty, I mean, that can be unveiled in a conversation. And then your child then has the ability to go read another book, Hmm. um, asking those questions. And you can worry a little bit less about what they read because you're not worried about ideas just seeping into their brain like a sponge if they have learned to ask questions and vet them before they get there, I guess. Hmm. Do you, um, do your kids ever uh, feel like Speaking of being an experiment, do they ever feel like they're kind of an experiment for the show? I think I've worked pretty hard to make sure that they don't, but every once in a while, (laughs) they'll say something. (laughs) You know what I can't resist is if their friends come over and we're all just, you know, kind of in the same room, they'll say like, so what are you reading lately? And so often the response. Yeah. Yeah. My, the funny thing is, is that a lot of times their kids are like super excited to talk to me about it and then see if I have any recommendations, but my kids are less excited. Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) Oh yeah. We do that. Like growing up, I remember like I had friends who like would come over and want to talk to my dad about something like philosophical or something. And oh yeah, I can see that. Can we not just go play video games or go play basketball (laughs) or something? I don't need to stand here and listen to him talk the same way he talks to me like at dinner time, you know? (laughs) Well, my son had, my 12 year old son had a friend over and I asked him, so what have you been reading lately? He goes, I don't read. I don't like reading. (laughs) And my son looked at him and said, that was exactly the wrong answer. And of course (laughs) I'm like, oh, we shall fix this. (laughs) So you had a new project. I don't think I did. Yeah. Terrible. I know. Right after I said about our kids aren't projects. (laughs) So, okay. So I mentioned earlier that probably we don't, 
a lot of our listeners don't necessarily need to be convinced of the value of reading, of reading aloud. Um, we have a pretty, you know, reader, readerly audience. I don't know. Is that the right way of putting it? Um, I think so. I should have, I should have probably thought about how to phrase that before I said, before I opened my mouth. Um, Bookish, except for that might have a, yeah, maybe right connotation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the point is these people value books and reading. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's, um, ingrained as a habit in their family life or that there's that culture or, or that they necessarily are doing it as well as they'd like to. So what advice do you have for sort of taking that to the next level, like taking that sort of literary culture in their family to the next level, or even just the activity of reading aloud to the next level? Um, are there things that you learned along the way where maybe you were already reading, but then you realized, you know, I want to do this in an even better way. Like I want this to become truly ingrained in the, the life of my family. Do you have anything, any advice for that sort of situation? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is remembering how important it is to have, uh, I guess, an easygoing and friendly demeanor. <laughs> when mm. I, So many of us who are literary and who read a lot, sometimes I think we can be perceived by our kids anyway as uh, kind of know-it-alls or... Yeah, teacher, like that whole teacher-student relationship where we could really open up some great conversations and really open up our family's reading life by being friendly and easygoing about talking about books. And what I find, especially in circles, maybe homeschooling circles, or at least for, for families that always have already, I should ha say, have, you know, good libraries at home and good reading habits and everybody's reading every day, pretty much for fun and for school uh, purposes. And, um, and books are an already entrenched part of their family life. Um, most of us could do well to relax a little bit into the way we talk about books and not be so afraid of talking about books the wrong way. I would say for years, I was worried about talking about a book like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because I was afraid I didn't know the right answers to the questions, so I didn't know how to ask the questions. You know, I wanted to have a yeah. Socratic dialogue with my kids, but I didn't know if I was a teacher wise enough to lead that. And yeah. so... Yeah when I could sort of realize that um, the first step is to change the demeanor and the way I was approaching my kids about books, uh, about those conversations and about what they were reading. That was sort of the first step. Um, I think it's a different challenge. It's, it's a very different challenge when you have a family that uh, is just not in the reading habit and maybe their biggest um, obstacle is screens and video games and phones, right? Or yeah. a family where the yeah. biggest obstacle is actually that their kids do a lot of reading, but don't passionately love it or don't openly talk to their parents about what they're reading. That's just yeah. a different, they're all different challenges, but they're kind of yeah. the same the heart of the same thing, which is how do we connect through these books? How do we use these books to make connections and to help them grow and to help us grow? And so when you were working on the book and, you know, maybe thinking about it at the beginning, did you kind of set out to sort of try to respond to all of those challenges? Cause I do feel like in reading through, through the book that, that in a lot of ways it does, you know, offer some, some, um, some advice and some, uh, you know, ways of approaching all those different challenges um, while still kind of staying with the overarching theme. Did you set out to do that or, did, or was that something that you, it just kind of maybe happened organically? Like, did you say, oh, there's these five different challenges. I want to help them solve the people that have these five challenges, solve them. 
Um, maybe not that organized because my brain's not quite that organized, but you know, like that purposeful. I think what I knew is that based on the people I've talked to at Read Aloud or Revival, there are, there is this wide variety of families that all deeply want to connect and we have a different obstacle in the way. So what I was hoping is that the beginning of the book would really set everyone's hearts on fire for this could make a huge impact. If we became a generation of families that read aloud to our kids, what could we do in the hearts of our kids and our relationships and for future generations sort of set that um, spark going. And then in the second part, realizing that probably people will hop around to whatever they feel like is their most immediate pain point. So there's a chapter that just helps people read aloud more if they're not reading aloud. I think that one's called set yourself up for success. And really it's just about practical strategies for how to read aloud more with your kids if you're really busy. And there's another uh, two chapters actually on conversations with your kids about books for people who are intimidated by literary analysis or who just don't know how to strike up a casual conversation with their kids about big ideas and and things that they're encountering in their reading. So kind of thinking through, um, depending, every family is in a little different spot and that same family will be at different spots along the lot, you know, all through the years, depending on the season that they're in, whether they have all younger kids, they're trying to figure out how do I, um, how do I make time for this? Or how do I not go crazy reading a lot to these kids that are like doing somersaults to older, (laughs) older kids. And you think, Oh my gosh, how do I pick books for my teens when the stuff they're bringing home from the library is trash. So there's all these different challenges, but what I was trying to do is figure out, um, how do we meet the needs of each family depending on where they're at and what they most need. And then the third part being book lists, that was really fun. And it was a really unique challenge because I wanted to, share some classics because we're going to have people reading the book who haven't, um, who aren't familiar with or are intimidated by classics, but a lot of contemporary books, because I think there are much fewer lists and curated lists online, um, or anywhere of books that are being published now that, uh, Christian families feel confident giving to their kids or reading with their kids or using as a conversation starter. So it ended up being a challenge to sort of try to meet the needs of families depending on where they are in their read aloud life yeah it sounds like it's i mean it sounds like one of those like challenges of trying to be you know something for everybody is kind of a difficult thing um you can't because you can't please everybody did you right right you think you were fairly successful at it or do you i mean how do you how do you ask someone that about their own book when they're promoting it right but yeah, and it's well, it's, it's really hard when you're clo- so close to like a book you wrote, you know, as you are to a book you wrote to talk yeah. objectively about it too. Right, yeah. um, but I did, we did have about 200 early readers. Um, and these are people who are members of Read Aloud Revival Premium membership. And most of them have listened to, uh, if not all, many of the Read Aloud Revival podcasts. And then we asked them anonymously so they wouldn't feel pressured. Um, <laughs> about whether they got what they got from the book. Cause I was, um, what I wanted to know is I think there's plenty here for people who've been around and who are reading aloud regularly, who have read Jim Trelease's book, who, uh, who feel confident in book choices. I still feel like there's plenty in this book for them, but I don't know if that's totally objective. So then when we asked them and they gave us that same feedback, that made me feel like, okay, we did it. Um, because I do hope that someone who's just not ever really thought about reading aloud to their kids much except for a bedtime story at night will find tools here to transform their family but also families who have been reading aloud for a long time and want to enrich that and like deepen their conversations and really lean into that beauty of a Hmm. family that can talk about and share books together um 
it was definitely a tricky thing to do. I think, I hope we pulled it off. <laughs> you know, I will say as I was reading and I haven't read every word, but I've read a good portion of it. And um, we ran one of the chapters from uh, chapter 10, I think on conversations. We ran yes, that I think so. magazine, which is going to the printer tomorrow actually. And so I think I'm really excited that we're going to get to be able to share that with people. But as I was reading it, I kept thinking, this is the kind of book that I would love for like my wife to read and, or someone who, you know, like Graham's wife, you know, somebody who we already read to our kids, but there's a lot of stuff in there for that sort of family. But it's also the kind of thing that I could see someone giving to like an in-law or a friend who, you know, they talk about how they want to read, but they don't really do it. Like, I think you did pull that off. Like I could see it being a perfect gift book for so many different situations. So I think that that's a pretty good accomplishment. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I know that I know that as a um, busy mother, I want a book to be really readable, especially if I'm trying to get, read it for a certain purpose in my parenting, you know? Yeah. And so one of the things I was trying to do there was remember that um, certainly not all, obviously, certainly not all of the readers are, are parents and certainly not all the readers are women. But if I have like the busiest most overwhelmed mother possible, um, who is short on time and is desperate to connect with her kids. How can I make this like almost impossible to resist? And, yeah, yeah. um, and, and it broken down in steps where they realize, Oh, I don't actually have to upend my whole life or take on some new identity or yeah. change the schedule. It's just, it'll fit into who we are now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got two questions for you and then I'll let you get out of here. I know you, you have, speaking of being a busy mom, right? Um, okay. So what does Sarah McKenzie read for herself when she is not, you know, reading children's books and young adult books for the read aloud revival podcast. And when she's not reading to her children. Ooh, okay. So <laughs> kind of cheesy. I mean, I really would read middle grade books pretty much for fun <laughs> because I love them. I mean, the books like Inesbit, Edward Eager, um, the Chronicles of Narnia. That's what I would want to read for fun myself. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I do love reading books on the writing craft um, or creativity. And um, right now I'm reading some books on writing for children. Um, I love reading those kinds of books and thinking about how I can make my own writing better. Or it's really fun to read books on writing for children and then see that how those things show up in books that you read with your kids. So that's been yeah, fun for me. Yeah. Um, I'm reading Pride and Prejudice uh, for fun. Nice. And nice. yeah, kind of slowly, I will say, it's always easier at the end of the day when you're tired to pick up the middle grade novel <laughs> than it is to pick up anything else. So it is kind of slow. But I, I mean, I'm reading it kind of slowly, but I'm very much enjoying it. I totally and, do. At the end of the day, yeah. I read a spy novel or some some book about a TV show or a movie and how it was made. That's like the end of the day, that's all I want to read. <laughs> so exactly. I, I get it. You can't read something where you're going to need to read the paragraph twice, you know, yeah. like not at the yeah, end of the exactly. day, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Or maybe like five times, you know, in my case. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. Okay, la last question then. Um, I'm kind of curious about some of the things that you're maybe thinking about doing long-term and I don't want you to give away, you know, secrets that are like, you know, trade secrets, but I'm curious, um, what is on the horizon for the read aloud revival podcast and for you in particular, and in that same vein, would you ever write a children's book yourself? 
Ah, you know, first person to ask me that. Um, okay, so for the podcast, you know, my hope for the book is really that it widens the reach of this message that reading aloud is a simple, powerful way to connect with our kids. And so in that hope, I really hope that we can keep doing that with the podcast and encourage new families that haven't heard us before because they found the book first. Um, that is something I hope. Really, most of our energy at Read Aloud Revival goes into our premium membership where we have families come meet authors in real, like on these live video streams, we do whole family book clubs um, and all kinds of different kind of activities where we help parents and kids connect through books and share these really warm experiences through books. And that is, I mean, that's where my heart is. That's where my energy and focus is. So I imagine that will continue to be the place where we really put most of our time and attention is in that premium membership. Um, I would love to write a middle grade novel for children. I'm extremely intimidated and I don't know if it, be, if it comes with the territory of reading so much um, that I just think I can never write anything like this. But, um, you know, I would love to write picture books. I would love to write middle grade novels. Um, I don't know if I have what it takes. I'm certainly going to give it a try, see if I nice. can. I don't know when exactly that will pan out, but you know, that will, you know. Yeah. When you'll have the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's always the question, right? <laughs> yes, I would love to. Um, you know, you can't help it when you're reading so much of this literature that has this beautiful impact on your kids. Not, it, It's almost like, of course, it's going to naturally come out of you to think, I want to contribute to that too. I want to do that too. I want to yeah. see if, you know, what happens if I try. Um, so yeah, are you, are you, <laughs> I would you, love to. Are but. you a storyteller? Like at bedtime, do you tell stories to your kids, things like that? Or is it, or do you? I don't. I I read them. I mean, I don't tell them. And so I, and I think the same is true with my writing where it takes me a lot of drafts to get something that's worth, re <laughs> that's worth anybody reading. So I think in my <laughs> storytelling, like orally, that's probably true. But like, I feel the same way in my oral storytelling that I'd have to say it over and over like 10 different ways before it came out in a way that anyone would want to listen to. So I tend not to be much of an oral storyteller, mm -hmm. although I should probably practice. That would probably be good practice for writing. <laughs> my kids beg me for stories. I, I mean, I don't really know why. Like I would just want to read the Bark of the Bog Owl and they want me to tell some silly story about otters fighting snakes or something. And I have no idea yes. what I said the night before, but they remember the whole thing and want me to like tell part two of the story. <laughs> Yes, and I yes. don't have any idea what I said because I was half asleep while I was trying to get them to bed, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mine are always really lame. So, you know, my twins have their favorite colors of blue and green. So it'll be like Prince Beckett and Prince Emerson were there had a green uh, <laughs> sword and a blue sword. And I'm like, this is the, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Probably pretty meaningful to them. I like, I like retelling fables or folk oh, yeah, tales, yeah. like, you know, yeah. little pigs and that's fun. Yeah. I love yeah. doing that. That's actually one of the reasons why I like the Bark of the Bog Owl because like there's like got that like uh, David, the story of David sort of thing that's kind yeah. of underneath the surface there. And, and like the yeah. kid kind of, I don't have to say anything. And after a while they start kind of picking up on little principles and they don't, they're not like, oh, that's weird that he's really telling the story. They're just like, hey, that's like that. And because they can draw connections, yeah. it becomes meaningful for them. So that's, that might be the, one of the marks of a really good children's book too. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. All right. Well, you do have things to do. So I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And I'm really excited for this book. Congratulations. That comes out on March 27th. So a little less than a month from today. Uh, where should people uh, pick up a copy? Is it still being pre can people still pre-order? You can pre-order the book anywhere you normally like to buy your books and then go to the readaloudfamily.com and put your receipt number in and you'll get 
free access to a brand new video class I made about how to choose books for your kids, which really oh, approaches wow. the idea of you walk into a library or a bookstore or you're looking online and you think, I don't know how to choose what is worth my kids' time and attention. And I don't know what's coming out today that's worth our time and attention. Um, so it, I teach my three question test for looking at a book in a bookshop or quickly and trying to assess whether it's worth a chance on your reading stack. and. Um, yeah, you get that video class for free when you pre-order before March 27th. You can nice. pre-order anywhere and then get the class at thereadaloudfamily.com. Well, that sounds kind of like an amazing deal. So I hope people go do that. Thanks again for joining me. This has been really fun. Thanks for having me. I always like talking to you. So I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.